Well, I'm going to try and jump back in the saddle and uh, kind of get back onto a, a regular pattern of, of posting again. I appreciate your patience. I know a couple of weeks ago I'd mentioned that likely some of the posting over the next couple of weeks would be a little bit sporadic. Uh, while we uh, took our father-in-law, my wife's uh, dad, uh, my father-in-law in, after his heart attack and uh, he had stent surgery and we're very, very grateful. God was very gracious to him. A lot of people are praying for him. We thank uh, the folks in our church and all of you who are watching who have offered up prayers on his behalf. Um, um, it's really uh, touching to see how emotional he gets when he knows how people have been praying for him and how God has been very good to him. And so we're very thankful for where he's at. He's still got some some road to, to cover you know, before he's really back to something like normal. But he's with us and he's doing well and little by little he's recovering and he's gaining some strength and all that kind of thing. Uh, any of you who've ever gone through that uh, or maybe know somebody who's gone through it, you know that can be a pretty tough road to hoe. And so it's not easy and we're, we're very grateful for, again, how gracious God has been to him. Um, and that said, now that we're kind of beginning to settle a little bit more, I think I'll be able to kind of get back into that, you know, four or five times a week uh, posting. And I'm, I'm excited to do that. So... Uh, with that in mind, if you got your Bible ready, I'll encourage you to open to Jonah, uh, chapter 3. Hopefully you got your Bible ready, and maybe even a good cup of coffee. <sighs> so satisfying. So, um, you know, we're going to be also rejoining our uh, midweek study this Wednesday night. For those of you who follow the live stream on Wednesdays uh, at 7 o'clock Central, we'll start that up again this week. Put it on hold while we're doing our um, home groups for uh, about a month and a half. And uh, we're going to kind of come back now into our midweek study. And uh, where we left off was in Nahum. Well, um, <coughs> I had anticipated finishing Nahum before we started the break with our home groups, but we didn't get that done. I got about halfway through it. So we're going to pick it up again this Wednesday. Well, if you're <coughs> familiar with Nahum, you know that uh, Nahum is sort of a companion book to Jonah. Jonah was a prophet that God had sent to the Ninevites or the Assyrians in Nineveh, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, he had a word for the Ninevites that he wanted delivered through Jonah, uh, and and the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, and then they were given a reprieve for about a hundred years, uh, and then later on, when they fell back into their wickedness, God sent Nahum to them. Uh, not to give any opportunity for repentance, but to call judgment down upon them that ultimately did uh, decimate them in the days to come and as the Babylonians would come in and, and strike them. And so, um, but Jonah came to mind as I was kind of revisiting Nahum and getting ready to go back into it for Wednesday night. And, uh, and of course, if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, we're going to look actually at Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 into chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, if you want to open there. and um, But if you remember the story, uh, Jonah, and it's really unfortunate, we think of Jonah, sadly, he is most often associated with the fish, the, the, the whale and this kind of thing. And he's sort of relegated to Sunday school lessons and that kind of thing. That's really too bad because Jonah is not just a Sunday school tale. Uh, it never actually says whale, by the way. It says a great fish, some a sea creature of enough size to be able to swallow a human being, which, by the way, has happened in history, uh, in modern enough history where we have examples of this kind of thing. The miracle is not really that Jonah got swallowed by a great fish, but rather that this fish did so on the command of, of God. Um, but anyway, Jonah himself is uh, mentioned a couple of times in the Old Testament as a prophet. He's also mentioned by no, no one less than Jesus himself. Uh, and the example of his time, three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, becomes a type or a metaphor for uh, for Jesus' own time, uh, three days and three nights in the belly of the, of the earth. And so 
Um, Jonah is actually a pretty important Old Testament writing. And uh, it's, again, very unfortunate that he's often sort of just chalked up as kind of a cute Sunday school fairy tale kind of a story. Not at all. This is actually a wonderfully profound book to consider. Um, and the story goes, for those who are maybe not that familiar or just, you know, maybe just think of it as being the story of the fish. Um, Jonah is a prophet of God who is called by God to go to Nineveh, the Assyrian city, the Assyrian capital. Nineveh at this point is, if not the biggest city of the time, one of the largest cities of the ancient world at that time, and it is massively wicked. Uh, the Assyrians are known for conquering nations and carrying off their captives with hooks in their jaws, uh, ultimately just bringing them back to the lands, putting their kings, the, the conquered kings, the vanquished kings, uh, in cages, you know, as a spectacle and this kind of thing. They were just wicked. And so when God calls Jonah to go there, Jonah's response, on the one hand, is not what you'd expect of a prophet of God, but on the other hand, is sort of expected of any normal person when they're told to do this very thing, go to Nineveh, the capital city of among the most wicked people in the world at that time, if not the most wicked. And Jonah, rather than being obedient, uh, as it says, I think it's in verse 3, he seeks to flee from the presence of the Lord, and he runs in disobedience to Joppa, catches a ship uh, to Tarshish. Now, Nineveh is northeast from this, and Tarshish is west. And so Jonah is essentially running the opposite direction of where God has called him to go. And so as he gets on this ship and he makes his way out to sea on his way to, um, to, Tarsh, to uh, Tarshish, um, he uh, falls asleep in the ship and God sends a storm on the ship. And the ship has started to just get tossed all over the place and <coughs> the sailors on the ship are seamen. They understand uh, rough waters. They're vest, they have a vested <coughs> interest. They're merchant uh, mariners. They have cargo on the ship that, that is their livelihood and everything. Well, they're throwing this stuff off the ship. They're trying to hold the ship together. The storm is ferocious. And the only person who's not doing anything about it right now is actually God's own prophet. So someone goes and finds Joni sleeping in the ship. And he says, why are you sleeping? You know, why, why aren't you calling out to your God like the rest of us? Maybe your God's the one who will make this storm stop. And Jonah confesses at this point and says, well, actually, this is the God that I serve. Um, I'm, I'm supposed to be going one way. I'm going the other way. This is God's doing. And so they bring him up on deck. They don't know what to do with him. And so he has the bright idea. He suggests, he puts forth the idea that, well, if you throw me overboard, the storm will stop and God will spare you. Now, now don't miss what Jonah is saying here. God told him to go to Nineveh. He's going to Tarshish and they're considering how to make the storm stop. An alternative answer could have been, well, just take me back or get me back somehow to Joppa so I can go back up to Nineveh where I'm supposed to go and walk in obedience and this will all work itself out. But he doesn't do that. He says, no, I think I'd rather die than do what God has told me to do. Now, he's afraid of dying at the hands of the Assyrians. He'd rather die in the ocean than go die at the hands of the Assyrians. And he'd also rather die than do what God told him to do. That'll preach, by the way, by itself. There's a great message in there. But, um, so the, the sailors call out to Jonah's God and they apologize for what they're about to do, but they do what Jonah said and they throw him overboard. And God has commissioned, as I mentioned earlier, a great fish to come and to swallow him up. And so Jonah gets essentially what, you know, tongue in cheek is typically called the first submarine ride. And so the fish carries Jonah off and begins to bring him back uh, in the direction he needs to go. And so God brings the storm to a stop. The sailors uh, light some of their load and having lost some of their livelihood because of the disobedient prophet, they go on their way, but their lives have been spared. 
And so the great fish brings Jonah back, spits him out onto dry land, and Jonah makes his way off to Nineveh. Now, Jonah's in this fish, again, as, as I mentioned, uh, Jesus uses this as a type, but Jonah's in the fish for three days and three nights, and then he prayed to the Lord. That gives you an indication of how stubborn Jonah is. So three days and three nights in, now Jonah begins to pray. And he describes this sort of hellish situation he's in. Think of what Jonah had to endure. He had to endure, endure being in, uh, uh, thrown overboard on a ship. He gets swallowed by a great fish, which was probably in and of itself no pleasant experience. And then he's in the this, this stomach acids and whatever this thing has been eating and is floating around inside of it and this kind of thing. And and then he, he spit out on the dry land. He probably looked every bit the mess that he possibly could uh, after sitting again in these in these acids and fluids and and you know seaweed and just whatever dead animals this thing's eaten along the way. Just and he gets and he's this is what he looks like. He's just got to be a wreck. And he comes to Nineveh finally in obedience. He comes to his senses in the in the great fish, and then God sends him off, and he makes his way back to Nineveh. He walks into Nineveh and he lays out a message that has no call to repentance whatsoever. Uh, you know, he just basically says five words in Hebrew that amount to 40 days and y'all are toast. And that's Jonah's message. There's no call to repent. There's no call to change their ways. It's just, you guys are dead. God's going to judge you. And, and Jonah is probably pretty darn happy about that. Because again, the Assyrians are wicked, they're evil, and they're a threat to Israel, by the way. And so, you know, as it turns out, God will use the Assyrians to judge his own people. Whether or not, how much of that Jonah is privy to, we don't know exactly. But sometime between the time of Jonah and Nahum, God uses the Assyrians to take Israel, and eventually even Judah, into captivity. So, And, and they are wicked, and so they become the instrument of God's judgment against his own people. But Jonah is, is, is there preaching their destruction and, and that's his whole message. And then he goes and sits down under a tree. Well, as, as he's preaching this, as this message is going out, and we don't know how many times he preached it as he, as he made his way through the city, but as he called this message out, this brief little message of impending doom upon them, the king and the people of Nineveh repent. They change their ways. They, they, and they do so not because they have any expectation that God is going to forgive them. They're doing it in the hope that God might give them a second chance. And so they repent and they are in sackcloth and ashes and they call a fast across the city. And God does, in fact, relent because of their change of heart. He gives them a second chance. Now, in Nahum, we find out a 100 years later, again, that he's going to judge them because in the course of that time, the Assyrians do come and crush Israel, and God does judge them for that. They're his instrument, but they are a pagan nation. They never, they don't remain in this place of, of, uh, you know, where they are after the repentance under Jonah. And so they're judged. But Jonah, and this is where we pick it up in chapter 3, verse 10, into chapter 4, verse 2. Now God has, um, forgiven and, and, and relented upon the Assyrians. And in verse 10, then God saw their works that they turned from their <coughs> evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Now, if you are an evangelist, and and I have prayed for the gift of evangelism over the years, I have often wished that I had the ability to share the gospel and people just to cry out, what what shall we do, men and brethren, this kind of thing. I, but, but, <laughs> I just don't have that gift. 
Uh, I try to do the work of an evangelist, as Paul would have told Timothy, but the actual gift of an evangelist, that I don't really have. And so when I see something like this, where a whole city, hundreds of thousands of people, come to faith in, in the true God, they repent of their idolatries and their wickedness and all these things, and they, for a, for a generation or more than a generation, about a hundred years, uh, or some part of a hundred years, they, they repent, and God forgives them, and they are, it's It's amazing. It is amazing. I call it a revival, but they never had been living in the first place, spiritually speaking. They'd always been dead spiritually, so they weren't revived, but they were breathed life into. They were, uh, I guess, kind of is revival, but it's, but they were, you know, the idea is that they were dead and they suddenly now were believing in the true God. It's amazing. It's a staggering success story in evangelism. This is the kind of stuff of, you know, legend. It's just like, how does that happen, Right. And you'd think Jonah would be celebrating, like, oh, God, you are so good and so gracious and so wonderful and so uh, merciful and long-suffering and all this kind of thing. Look at just how your grace is in action and this kind of thing. That's not exactly the way Jonah sees it. Now, he does say something similar, but it's not with the same spirit. In verse 2, he says, so he prayed to the Lord and said, ah, Lord, was this not or was not this what I said before when I was in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. So he acknowledges all these great qualities of God, but he's not happy about them. He is not a fan of God's grace and mercy in this circumstance. Now, if we're being honest, there are times when we don't understand why God does things the way he does them. The entire book of Habakkuk is essentially built on this idea. You know, why are you going to use the Chaldeans to judge your own people? We're wicked, but they're even more wicked. Um, but, you know, sometimes God does things in ways that we don't understand. And sometimes when he does things like this, where maybe he shows kindness to someone that we have a real problem with, somebody we're really struggling with, somebody who's maybe wronged us or, or, or maybe has gotten in the way of something we were trying to do or... Maybe they've, uh, they're just wicked people and we're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, God just, yeah, we get all imprecatory on them, like David would have in some of his Psalms. Lord, smash their teeth and, you know, all this kind of thing. Um, and sometimes we sort of, you know, define our getting angry at somebody like Jonah. He was angry because the Lord was kind and, and relented upon the Ninevites who were wicked and evil. Um, sometimes when we take on that same mindset, we sort of justify it and make it seem as though we're being like Jesus when he was flipping tables over and that kind of thing. When Jesus flipped over tables, the glory of God and access to God was being limited by the religious leadership of the time. The hypocrisy was uh, was something that he just had a definitive righteous indignation toward, and he was right. Obviously, he was right, but he was clearly right for doing what he did and driving out the money changers and all that kind of thing. Because access to the Father and this house of prayer was being desecrated. All this, this, what was right was completely made wrong. Jonah, and frankly us sometimes when we get angry in, in similar ways, this is not righteous indignation. This is sort of a, a self-righteous indignation. We feel like God should do things a certain way. That we feel like God should not show favor to this person that is gotten in my way or has wronged me in some way or has made my life difficult in some way. We don't think that God should be kind to them. We don't think that God should show favor and mercy and grace to them. 
We think God should smash their teeth. We think God should judge them. We think God should marginalize them and push them aside and elevate me because after all, I'm not the one who wronged them. They wronged me and this kind of thing. And so we get confused. Why does God do that? Why does he act that way? And we may not go pout per se, or well, we probably do actually, you know, but our pouting may look similar or different from Jonah's, but but we do. We respond like Jonah does to the Lord. We question him and we 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 sort of have a problem with why he would be generous and gracious to somebody who we don't feel deserves it. Well, you know, Jesus himself spoke about how God brings the rain on the just and the unjust. And the rain, by the way, you know, in, in that context is not seen as a bad thing. It's seen as a good thing. In that agrarian society that they lived in, rain was seen as a blessing from God. And so Jesus is saying that God brings blessing upon the just and the unjust. Uh, he is merciful and, and kind and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in mercy and such, as we read so often in the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Uh, often God is seen as being mean and angry in the Old Testament, loving and kind and, and Sunday school-like in, in the New Testament. But no, he's the same God throughout. And we see that throughout the Old Testament where God is abounding in, in, in love and mercy and such, even to his enemies. Um, he, he hates sin and he brings judgment, but it is not because he desires to do so. He actually wants to see people repent and turn and that kind of thing. And so they're given opportunity to, like the Ninevites. And sometimes we wrestle with that attitude and mindset. We don't share that kind of grace and graciousness with those that we don't like. It's easy for us to be gracious and to forgive those who wrong us when we love them and care for them. But somebody who's maybe kind of on the outs with us a little bit, not so much. It is it is interesting how Jesus expressed how our attitudes should be. He didn't just say to go make right with somebody that you have a problem with. He said, if you suspect someone's got a problem with you, you should go and make right with them. Um, settle before you get to court, all those kinds of things. You know, you... You want to make sure that you have the attitude that is forgiving 70 times, seven times, um, even among your enemies. You know, um, your neighbor in Jesus' parable was, um, or, you know, or maybe it wasn't even a parable. Maybe it was a story that actually had happened. But, uh, but in, in the story of the Good Samaritan and that, this is kindness shown toward one who would be viewed as an enemy and kindness that was had no ability to be repaid and the one who was shown to didn't even know it was being shown to them until they woke up after their beating in in, uh, in a nice comfortable you know inn and so the mindset and the attitude that we're called to have is one that admittedly is not easy in the flesh it's impossible outside of just a pocket once in a while when maybe we feel like there's some gain to be uh, gained from it but but to live with a mindset of grace, forgiveness, generosity toward those who we see as undeserving of it is something that is possible and excuse me, is even commanded upon those who are followers of the Lord. Now, Jesus spoke often about this in, in the gospels, but especially in regard to the attitude of those who after the gospel period at that time when the Holy Spirit now took up residence within believers, you know, in John 20, when Jesus breathes on the disciples and they receive the Holy Spirit, they become now New Testament believers the way we would typically understand it now. And those who came to be born again after that point, after the resurrection now, would always have indwelling within them the Holy Spirit. And so now we have, by the power of the Spirit of God, the ability to become more and more like Christ. This is why 
um, in, in, in the Thessalonian writings, Paul talks about this is the will of God for your sanctification, being made more and more like Jesus, separated from the world and made more like Christ. This is why in Romans 12, we're told to uh, lay ourselves on the altar and, and give ourselves as a living sacrifice in connection with the idea of not being conformed to the world, being transformed by the renewing of our mind. In other words, the way that we see the world, the way we respond to the world, the way we think about these things is something that is consistently being transformed as we consistently lay ourselves, as it were, on the altar. Positionally, we stand forgiven in Christ, but daily in terms of our sanctification, this is an ongoing project and process that God, uh, the Holy Spirit, is working within us. And it does require us, he does invite us to daily lay ourselves on the altar, right? This is something he tells us to do in participation with that process of sanctification, not salvation. That's something that's entirely by God's grace alone. Uh, But when it comes to what we do and what we are like, the attitudes that should be expressed outwardly and the actions and such, these things grow from what God has done within us in saving us and what the Holy Spirit is doing daily in us in sanctifying us. Again, this is admittedly very difficult. But when we see a story like Jonah's, when we see, and again, it's so little of it has to do with the great fish. Again, it's like just a, a brief blip in the entire story. It's just, it's dramatic, but it really doesn't take up much of the content. It's a very small part of the story. The, the, you know, the, the story really revolves around what God wanted to do through this prophet and what, what, what God wanted to teach this prophet. Well, I would argue that that is a pretty good summary of what God is you know, doing in our lives. He wants to do something through us, but he also wants to teach us. And in this particular example with Jonah, clearly the idea is, and when you read the rest of the story, how Jonah is confronted by the Lord about his anger and frustration uh, uh, in, in why God was demonstrating his goodness and grace, there is clearly a sense that we come to the understanding that we don't always understand what God is doing in uh, in and through us. We don't know what purposes he's always accomplishing in a given circumstance. But we do know that as his servants, we have an opportunity as well as a responsibility to walk in the ways that he calls us to walk, that he might use us the way he wants to use us, and that he might help grow us the way he wants to grow us. Again, admittedly, once again, this is difficult. It's humbling. Uh, it forces us to put our pride on the back burner uh, to, to stop seeing things the way that we would normally in the flesh see things and instead do our, our, our level best for our part and to avail ourselves to the Holy Spirit that maybe we might gain some sense of what the heart and mind of God might be in a given circumstance. That we too might learn to be gracious and, and merciful and, and generous in our love and, and, um, and, and grace toward others in this kind of thing. Now, of course, it would be easy to say, well, if you consider, like Jesus told in a couple of stories, if you consider how much we were forgiven, how could we not forgive somebody else? It would be easy to leave it at sort of the guilt trip level. Well, think about what you've been forgiven of and how on earth do you have the right to not uh, forgive somebody else or whatever. But it shouldn't have to be left on a guilt trip level. Again, the Christian faith is not one and the Christian life is not one that ought to be lived on such a surface base level where I'm just doing it because I know I'm supposed to. It should be so much more than that. Lord, I want to be like you. And that's an easy thing to say when it comes to power and victory over sin in our lives and things like this. To to understand it in those terms is not hard. But to ask to be like him in regard to his humility, you know, the Philippians 2, 5 through 8, when it comes to the idea of this mind being on us that is also in Christ Jesus, 
That's a difficult one. That's tough. That is, that, that has much more to do with changing who we really are than most other things, probably more than any other thing. Lord, change my mind. Help me to think and to see things from that vantage point that you have invited me to the hill of the Lord, the, the holy place, the secret place of the most high. Help me to dwell in that place and come out of there with your mindset, your heart, uh, your willingness to humble yourself before your creation, demonstrate love, grace, mercy, generosity in, in, in those areas. That is way beyond my ability to do in and of myself. Um, again, it's a profound passage in Jonah. It's, it's, um, uh, it's something worth considering in this Sunday school, often seen Sunday school type of story. It's obviously much more than that. So, uh, thanks for watching and listening. And again, I hope to be a little more, uh, on top of getting out regular posts. Uh, I will ask you to forgive me if I miss a day here and there as we're doing stuff. Uh, again, we're fitting lots of things around, some new things that we're building into, uh, our daily lives. And so appreciate your grace and, and, uh, patience on that. But Father, thank you for teaching us important things from your word. Thank you for lessons like in Jonah. You know, uh, again, how often we see this story as being just sort of a light Sunday school kind of a story and a Fisher Price toy set and that kind of thing, but not really seeing the depth of what is really going on there in the heart of this man that uh, had opportunity to serve you in that day. And in many, many regards really failed in that. Father, we fail in the same way very, very often because we, like Jonah, had the same attitude. Father, help us to, to learn from this. Uh, we don't want to come down on him because, again, there go we, but by the grace of God. But we do pray that you'd help us to learn from it, that, Father, we would adopt a mindset that is more Christ-like uh, and willing to humble ourselves. And instead of worrying about how we see somebody or some circumstances and how we think it should be dealt with or how this person should be dealt with, help us instead to kind of lay back and just give it to you and help and, and ask you to help us to understand how we, like you, can be gracious, merciful, long-suffering, and the like. Thank you, Father. We praise you and bless you. And this is a hard thing for us. It's a difficult thing. It grates against uh, the core of who we are so often. Even our sanctified, ever-growing sanctified selves, Father, those of us who have put our trust in Christ, we are born again. We are saved. And we do recognize that we've been saved from an insurmountable debt. But even still, when it comes to you changing the very fundamental nature of what we are and helping us to be kind in, in situations that we would typically be anything but, we ask for your help. Help us daily to remember the importance of and to be willing to lay ourselves on the altar and to allow you to transform us by the renewing of our minds uh, and not to allow ourselves to be conformed to this world and its thinkings and its ways. And certainly uh, these things reflect the God of this world, but you've invited us to come and know the God of creation. So we love you and thank you for all this and ask you to help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.